Corporation v. GM Global Technologies. Mr. Lemley, please proceed. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court. The text of Section 103 requires that the obviousness analysis in design or utility patents be done by reference to a person of ordinary skill in the art. Rosen and Durling adopt a strict rule that forbids courts and the Board from even looking beyond a single reference unless that reference was itself basically the same as the patented invention. Mr. Lemley, if we were to conclude that the Rosen-Durling test should be overturned for the reasons that you gave, do you agree there should nonetheless be an analogous arts requirement to assessing what is the scope and content of the prior art as exists in the utility patent context? Absolutely, Your Honor, and we think analogous arts in the utility patent context is the right analogy. The designer might look within their same field. They might also, in appropriate circumstances, look beyond the field to address the problem being solved. Yeah, but that's functional language. That's functional language. So I'm struggling. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I can only find one case of ours that talked about what the standard for analogous arts is in the design patent context. It's a case called HAP. So if you don't know it, that's okay. But that's not the test. It doesn't talk in the functional language. That is not the test currently, Your Honor, but I think the reason that there aren't cases that address that issue is that the Rosen-Durling rule has been so narrowing that we've never actually gotten there. I agree. There's no point. If it has to be basically the same, it's in the analogous arts. I get it. So one of the problems I have is that nary a brief, and despite the many briefs we got, educated this court on what the replacement standard for analogous arts should be. You've agreed there should be one, but nobody told us what that standard would be. And you see, one of the problems I have is I have this natural disinclination to employ what feels like the functional language of the analogous arts test for utility patents and drag it over to the design context. Understood, Your Honor. And I don't think that it has to be a functional test or should be a functional test, but I do think it is right that, as the evidence from both sides in this case indicates, designers are setting out to solve problems, and sometimes they will set out to solve those problems by looking elsewhere. So I can give you an analogy not from this court's precedent, but from cases prior to the creation of the Federal Circuit. In Sidewinder Marine v. Starbuck, the Tenth Circuit invalidated on obviousness grounds a patent on a windshield for a boat. And the relevant art, the court said, was windshields for cars. Because if you were designing a windshield, you would naturally think to look to other places there might be windshields. Mr. Lemley, you talk about analogous art and solving problems. What problems exist with respect to ornamental design? So, Your Honor, I think a designer might be solving any of a number of problems. They might be trying to sell products, for instance. They might be trying to make a product look in a particular way. So the testimony in this case, including testimony from GM's expert, Dr. Peters, says designers are absolutely problem solvers. He says, I believe that good automotive design is a three-dimensional product solution to a problem or challenge that is beautifully executed. Counsel, I'm just curious. I mean, just because you're saying, I think one of the hearts of your argument is that it should be a factual case-by-case determination, right? That seems to be something you're emphasizing. But you're suggesting right now that we're supposed to think that in every case, the designer is trying to solve a problem for something that is an ornamental design on an article of manufacture. I don't intend to suggest that, Your Honor. And if I gave that impression, I apologize. I think the answer is exactly right, as you stated it. 
design differs, circumstances differ, and the right question is a factual question. I think it is often the case, uh, as designers themselves will tell you, that designers are trying to solve problems. They might be trying to make the car look sporty. Uh, what do you think the purpose of the analogous art test is? I think the purpose is to make sure that we don't just sort of reach to anything in the world uh, as a potential uh, basis for prior art. Are we trying to define what the ordinary designer would look to in the scope of where they might get incentive or, or inspiration? Yes, Your Honor. And I think as, as with utility patents, that can be the field they work in. Uh, but it can also be the problem they are trying to solve. So if I'm trying to build a windshield for a speedboat, I might look to other people who've built windshields. So I think the... the so, so to some extent, the same problem exists with respect to the TSM case uh, uh, test and the uh, uh, reasonable expectation of success. It's a, it's a bit of an awkward fit to just translate the tests for utility patents to design patents, and, and nobody much addresses that either, which is a bit of a problem. I, I agree with that, Your Honor, and I think reasonable expectation of success in particular may be one of those concepts that doesn't translate particularly well. Uh, and I, to be clear, right, our position is not, you must apply uh, KSR in all its forms uh, just as you would for a utility patent. What you, what I think this court must apply is the, uh, is the principle of KSR, which is that we don't simply look at what's in the document. We ask whether a person of skill in the art, or here a designer of skill in the art, right, would have an articulable reason uh, to modify a reference, to look to a particular uh, reference. And that basic approach, I think, is perfectly consistent across utility and design patents. How it is applied is going to differ, I think, in particular cases based on the nature of design. Mr. So, Mr. Lemme, is it important that we decide whether KSR overruled or abrogated frozen Durling, and if that is important, why is it important? I don't think it's important, Your Honor. Uh, I, th I think the important thing is that it, uh, uh, Rosen and Durling are inconsistent with uh, KSR uh, and should not survive that test. Mr. Lemley, the PTO points out that the, you know, the game for them, a lot of the game, is the, in the examination process, and they take issue with your willingness or, or advocacy for abrogating the threshold test by saying that, well, yeah, in litigation you get the benefit of design experts, but the examiners don't have that. So what do you say to that? Yeah, so I think, first off, Your Honor, I think I think we agree, or uh, we find ourselves in almost entire agreement with the PTO. Uh, I, I don't think the PTO would sort of keep Rosen uh, uh, at either step of Rosen. I do think they are concerned, understandably, about how examiners are going to apply this test. I, I think the answer to that uh, is uh, the same way they do in uh, utility patents, right, which is we have to consider in appropriate circumstances what uh, a person of skill in the art would do. Um, it's true there won't be expert testimony uh, in the PTO before the examiner, but it is quite common in utility patents for uh, for applicants to submit expert declarations on things like the skill of the art, and the rule in the PTO is that they take those declarations as given for purposes of prosecution. That's worked pretty well. And I will note that the PTO, the same concerns were expressed before, after KSR. How will we do this? How will examiners be able to do this? The PTO actually, in its guidance after KSR, in the MPEP, uh, said this is no problem. Supreme Court's flexible approach to the obviousness inquiry, it said, is reflected in numerous pre-KSR decisions. 
That section provides many lines of reasoning to support a determination of obviousness. Thirty minutes. Could you slow down? Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> section provides many lines of reasoning to support a determination of obviousness. Thus, the type of reasoning sanctioned by the opinion in KSR has long been part of the patent examination process. And indeed, it turned out. Right, uh, that yes, we had to adjust things, and the rules were not quite the same. But the uh, the examination process and the litigation process, I think, have worked uh, quite well in the in the wake of KSR. And I, I so I'm I'm sensitive to the PTO's concern, uh, but I don't think the solution is a rigid rule, and certainly not a rigid rule that is inconsistent with Counselor, KSR. Counselor, in view of KSR, exactly what's the problem in your? In your uh, view, with the Rosen-Durlin test, is it that it's a test, or is it that the the manner in which the test is applied? Well, I think I think the I think the test itself is a problem. That doesn't mean there can't be a test, but this test is inconsistent well, with why the answer. Would, why would that be a problem? Well, see, I, I think the problem is twofold, Your Honor. Right? One is I mean, there's plenty of tests. We have Alice step one, step two. Uh, There's plenty of tests in our law. Why, uh, why is this one a problem? I, if I misspoke, I apologize. I do not think the problem is having a test. I think the problem is that the test here, uh, there are two problems. One is that the test here does not allow us to look to the very thing that the statute and KSR say we are to look to, which is the, the views and knowledge of the designer of ordinary skill in the art. If there is not a reference that is basically the same, we're done and we can't look outside. Second, the second part of Rosen-Durling, the so-related test, uh, says even if you satisfy that extraordinarily high threshold, you still can't look to anything that a designer might actually uh, think. You can't look to market forces. All you can ask is whether a second piece of prior art is so related to the first uh, as demonstrated in the piece of prior art itself that it would suggest combination. And that second part of the test is, I think, even more problematic under KSR because it's the very teaching suggestion and motivation requirement that KSR rejected. You can't combine these references unless the references themselves point you in that direction. Mr. Lemley, uh, do you think the simple substitution rationale from KSR applies in the design patent context for 103? Your Honor, I think the answer is... um, it might, in certain factual circumstances, depending. The, con- the concern I have is that starts that would start to look like as long as you can find these elements, design elements anywhere in the prior art, then it would just be a simple substitution to replace them with something in your base design and then create the claim design, and then all of a sudden you don't have to say any more, you don't have to do any more, you don't have to give any further reasoning. And we don't have the same kind of function-based interchangeability between two given elements that we have in utility patents. I, I think that's all correct, Your Honor, and I think it's a reason why you should not simply allow it to happen, right? The right question is, is there some articulable reason to think designers would have combined these two? But I think sometimes there will be, and Whitman Saddle, to me, is a great example of that. I'm sorry, I, sorry just, I, I had taken it that one of the roles that the simple substitution piece of KSR has played is as itself furnishing a reason, which I took to be um, at least my interest in Judge Williams' well, question, and that's the problem. But but I, I well I don't I don't think that's true, Your Honor, except where driven by functional consideration. So it is I don't think KSR sort of intends or has been interpreted to suggest that you can always just mix and match anything from any piece of prior art. So, so in the design context where there are not uh, physical operational functional considerations, um, it 
might simply be inapplicable. Well, I think, again, I think, Your Honor, it's going to depend on the circumstances, and I think Whitman Saddle is a good example of where it might be appropriate, because the court there made findings that saddle designers were, in fact, regularly in the business of mixing and matching parts of saddles because that's what customers wanted. So they were solving a, a problem. What do the customers actually want in their saddle? Uh, and, the, and the court specifically found uh, that, quote, it was customary for saddlers to vary the shape and appearance of saddle trees in numerous ways. Nothing more was done in this instance than to put the two halves of the saddles together in the exercise of the ordinary skill of workmen of the trade and in the manner, way and manner ordinarily done. Now, I think that's true of saddles. Uh, I, whether it's true of lace designs, I don't know. Mr. But I, no, Mr. Lemley, I wanted to ask you, you said something about solving the problem because customers wanted saddles of different designs, different fronts and backs. So is that a market problem? Is it a customer problem? It, you know, when you think about analogous arts in the context of utility patents, when we're talking about a problem, it's a, usually a technical problem. So, yes, Your Honor, although I think KSR makes clear that you don't stop there. Uh, and KSR says, uh, in particular, that motivations right, can come not just from the prior art itself or Counsel, the technology. you're not answering her question. She's focused on analogous arts, not motivation combined. Those are two different things. You were talking about what art you would look to, it sounded to me. I was thinking about analogous arts. So what... If you referred to problem again. You like to seem to like the problem test for analogous arts. I was wondering, could you focus on that a little more specifically? Because it sounded like you were talking about, you know, design problems or customer market problems, customer problems as opposed to a technical problem. Well, I think that's right. Uh, and again, I do think uh, uh, that KSR does suggest that the sources to which you would look are not limited to the prior art itself, right? Um, KSR says, quote, design incentives and other market forces can prompt variations either in the same field or a different one. Uh, and then it goes on to give examples. If a technique's been used to improve one device, maybe it could improve another. Um, the court uh, can take account, the court says, of the inferences and creative steps that a person of ordinary skill would employ. So I, I think the answer is, while that is both a motivation to combine within the art, I think it is also the answer to sort of what might uh, be a relevant piece of art to solve the problem. Is it your view that KSR changed the analogous arts test? Uh, no, Your Honor, because I think the analogous arts test was already sufficiently capacious uh, before KSR to, to reach not just things in the same field, but things from outside the field that were designed to solve a particular problem. So, and it, I know, but that's, that's, I'm still struggling. I, I haven't been able to wrap my head around the, the concept of how a design patent would be solving a particular problem. I understood the analogous arts to limit the universe of what an ordinarily skilled person in that art would turn to. And so I, I, I understand not wanting to limit it to the same field of endeavor, but like so many aspects of obviousness don't have natural analog, analogs, long felt need, you know, various things don't, don't sort of naturally flow from utility to design patents. I'm similarly struggling with the analogous arts and what the test should be. We don't want to replace one potentially bad test with a different potentially bad test. Understood, Your Honor. And I, and I, but I do think the, the test is 
uh, articulated in the utility patents, right, actually fits this not terribly poorly, right, because uh, what it says is dependent on what the person of ordinary skill in the art would do. And so if this is a circumstance in which I am interested in achieving a particular result, uh, and I know there are things outside of my field that point to that result. Right? I suggested the windshield example from the Tenth Circuit, but you might imagine uh, that if I my goal was to make a car look sleek and sporty. Let me ask you a different question. So the windshield example could be encapsulated by just extending the field of endeavor, right? Maybe the answer is the same field of endeavor, but the field of endeavor is not limited to the product itself and its particular use. Maybe the field of endeavor could be, you know, glass or glass making. I don't know. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around what the right articulation is because certainly the field of endeavor is a portion of the analogous arts that I've seen contract and expand. I think that's fair, Your Honor, right? But I, but I do think there are circumstances, right, in which, uh, because I am trying to achieve a particular goal, I might look outside that field of endeavor. And I, I, I so all I'm suggesting is that this court should, as it does in the utility patent context, leave open the possibility that analogous art is not limited to however narrowly or broadly a particular court <coughs> defines the. Let me throw out something crazy. Ready? You said leave open the possibility. One of the problems I'm struggling with, as you can see, is you seem to agree analogous arts would still apply, but I'm struggling with uh, the fact that our prior design patent law uh, cases, in much as you have acknowledged, didn't really tackle the analogous arts because there was a journaling test and you have to kill something twice. So um, anyway, uh, and we don't have briefing on this point. I'm certainly not asking for supplemental briefing. <laughs> um, but would it be crazy if the court were to say analogous arts slash left to another day to figure out the contours of it? I think that would be. I think that would be fine. That is, I don't think it's actually presented in this case by the facts of this case. Well, yeah, it's all fenders. Yes, or, or exactly. Wheel wells and whatever. Right. I think that would be fine. I think. I think the one thing that is important is that uh, the court not simply get rid of part one of the Rosen test and leave us with the so related test that essentially cabins the analogous arts doctrine to nothing. The <laughs> second part of Rosen and Durling also, I think, is you know has to has to fail under KSR. You uh, do you agree that the. Glavo's case is the first case, I think, to introduce the so-related case and did so in order to be able to try to figure out what analogous art is? Well, I think, Your Honor, I, I mean... I mean I, there's language right in that case that says, you know, the utility patent analogous arts test doesn't apply, and then they say, we're going to use this so-related test. Right. And, and, and unfortunately, the result of that, I think, has been to essentially eliminate any analogous art, uh, right, to say only things that themselves uh, within the design itself point to the other are, are going to be included, and, and I just think that's too narrow under KSR. That's flatly inconsistent with what KSR itself said. Well, if GLAVOS was meant to create an analogous art test and it's not workable, then one would think GLAVOS would be something that should be reconsidered as well. Agreed. So related tests. I, I, oh, absolutely. I agree with that, Your Honor. Lemme, I'd like to better understand your position on the starting point. You said, I think, you largely are in agreement with the PTO's position, though they would limit the starting point to a suitable reference. Uh, I didn't understand you to be accepting that. And just more generally, what would be wrong with a return to something like Jennings, a something in existence, perhaps a complete design? 
So, and Your Honor, I think the answer is that that will often be the right starting point because it's often where designers would start, but it's not always where designers would start. Uh, and I think uh, in both KSR and in Whitman Saddle, uh, the court sort of not only left open but applied the possibility that you might uh, be motivated to take two different things, neither of which really qualifies as a would, primary would, reference. Would that, would you have us allow the starting point be just a single ornamental feature? Or does it have to be at least something like a complete design? I think I think it would be an extraordinary circumstance in which it was a single ornamental feature, uh, and I'd want to know. Uh, uh, I guess I'd want to know of a circumstance of why that would be true. I think you'd want some some pretty strong evidence that that was true. I do think it is important that this court leave open the possibility of something like Whitman Saddle, right? Where the practice in the industry is take the front half of a saddle from one and the back half of a saddle well, from is another. Is that done with the PTO's test? Because as I understand the PTO test, which you seem to have embraced, is that even if you don't match the first starting point, you get to keep going. So even if Whitman Saddles doesn't fit neatly into you've got one starting singular starting point, if you can keep going, it would allow for that sort of... I think that's right, Your Honor, as long as this Court is clear that, that uh, this is not Rosen under another name or we've kind of uh, uh, put a little more flexibility into the basically the same test, that there will be circumstances right in which uh, we are taking different parts. Just as in KSR, uh, the Court said, you could start with the pedal assembly uh, and add the electronic sensor, or you could start with the electronic sensor and add the pedal assembly, right? uh, and either of those would be a, a potentially legitimate combination for a uh, for an inventor. Do you agree that Whitman Saddle had a primary reference? They refer to the Granger Saddle with the substitution of the Jennifer Cantle for the low broad cantle of the Granger. I, I don't, I mean, I think... I mean, I, from a KSR standpoint, why isn't that a primary reference? I, I, I think I think it, it goes back to Judge Post's question, Your Honor, that is, if primary reference is reduced to mean simply a place we start but not something that has to have all or most of the pieces, then we're fine with it. Uh, I think the key is I, that uh, where we want to start is where designers would start, uh, and that will usually be with a with a single primary reference. Uh, but I don't think it should exclude circumstances like Whitman Saddle, uh, where you might be motivated to combine these two uh, things, each of which are pretty substantially different uh, than the other. I understand that you want to dislodge the Rosen-Durling test, but would you object to? an opinion that said something like um, a Rosen reference that shows basically the same design as the claim design is a useful, compelling tool to the 103 inquiry. Maybe it basically puts you on the four or five yard line. and um, But it's not always required. And um, But we would typically expect that a base reference, a primary reference as a starting point would be the same article of manufacture and have, you know, a number of visual similarities to the claim design. Uh, so I, I, th I think a lot will depend on because, how exactly it's phrased. Right, and then if, to keep going, because to start with a very visually dissimilar base uh, reference uh, seems very unlikely that you would ever successfully make a 103 case. That's a run-on sentence, but you understand the points that we're trying to make here where we want flexibility in the test, but there should be some expectations in how a, 
design patent examiner should be thinking or how a, a design patent challenger should be thinking in terms of how to organize their case. Yeah. I, I do understand that, Your Honor, and I guess what I would say is I think the idea that Rosen, uh, while no longer required, is optional. It is a way and maybe an easy way to show uh, obviousness we are fine with. Uh, and then I think beyond that, the question is right uh, whether the articulation ends up being Rosen under another name, right? Whether the uh, the PTO or the district courts are uh, end up kind of falling back on something like basically the same, we'd want to avoid that. I, mean, I know we've been living under a Rosen-Durling world for quite a few decades, but just going all the way back to Whitman Saddle, I'm, I'm not aware of an example of a case anywhere where the primary reference was far afield from the claim design or was... Uh, very visually dissimilar from the claim design. And so we, we just, if we really were to invite that kind of uh, inquiry, uh, we would really be uh, in wide open territory. I understood, Your Honor, and I guess, I guess what I would say is I think the... Um uh, I, I think maybe a, a, a way that I that I would be more comfortable with the articulation is not you can never do this under any circumstances. But I'm not saying that this is the norm, and it would require uh, or a strong, strong evidence to believe that somebody would start with a completely different uh, field, um, and that I think could be consistent with this idea of KSR's articulable reason uh, to to make this modification, right? And and I think in, as as you suggested, in the vast majority of cases. Um, uh, that's not true, and maybe that will turn out to be true in all cases, right, that we're going to start there. I just, I am nervous about the idea that something that gets articulated as uh, as a, a sort of rule ends up getting ossified. I'm nervous the, about the idea you're losing all your rebuttals. <laughs> I am too, Your Honor. I'm, I'm happy to answer other questions. I guess, I guess the problem with that last exchange is you could have a situation which is a new article of manufacture, which doesn't find a, uh, a template for in, in, in earlier art and, and, and somebody starting from scratch and you want to preserve the possibility of an obviousness analysis under those circumstances. I agree with that, Your Honor. And so one of the things that's notable in the analogous art test and utility patents is that it says the art uh, in of the field or the field with which it is most closely connected, which I think is designed to accommodate precisely that concern. I have some concern that um, the case that we have before us is an industry-specific case. Um, you Looking at all the amicus briefs that we got, and we've got quite a few of them, almost all of them, if not all, are within the auto parts and auto industry. Where, where's everybody else? Where, where's the outcry? Where, where are the other designers? So, um, well, I do think well, you... Let me finish. So aren't we entering a slippery slope here in trying to fashion a new test uh, uh, under your 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 arguments, um, when we don't fully understand the the implications of, of what we're doing, Your Honor, I think that's precisely why the test you articulate should be a fact specific, industry specific test. Right? It may well be that designers in different industries. What do you mean? We have a different test for a different industry. No, Your Honor. I think you have an approach, the KSR approach, that is sufficiently general uh, that it asks the question, what would a designer of ordinary skill in the art do? And that allows for the possibility that designers in automotive are, are going to do something very different than designers in a different field. Um, I, and I think... 
you know, one one example of how that happens, right? There are a number of the uh, uh, parts of the design in this patent that are dictated by the fact that car fenders need to attach to car doors, right? People want them to actually sort of touch each other, right? And so if the door is cut in a certain way, the fender has if to be we, cut. If, if the Rosen-Durling test was, is a problem, shouldn't we be hearing from other industries, right? other industry sectors? Well, I, I do. I, I do think. Um, I, I do think it is a particular problem in the automotive industry, um, not for reasons of doctrine, but for reasons of policy. Uh, the automotive industry is doing its best to eliminate the right to repair. There's not too many cases in this dealing with this particular issue, uh, a design patent case. Shouldn't we just let this percolate, you know, within our own circuit and? And let let the let the um, the bar and and the the industries come and and um, um, help us give us a guidance to the cases that are actually presented. Your Honor, I, I, I think it's not going to percolate. We've, we've had this doctrine uh, for a number of years, um, and because we've had this doctrine, the cases that come to this court are a very uh, skewed subset. Right? Uh, nobody brings an appeal in circumstances where they don't think if they could make... If there's no percolation, then there's no problem. Uh, I disagree with that, Your Honor, because the board and the district courts and the PTO are applying Rosen and Durling, and they are applying it in a very rigid way. It's why we see that only 2% uh, of PTO rejections, uh, PTO design patents have a, even a rejection, initial rejection for obviousness um, uh, compared to the much larger number in utility patents. It's why, the, uh, it's why the board in cases like Campbell repeatedly said, even though the only difference is did you depict the can in the can dispenser, Rosen requires us to uh, uh, to hold otherwise. I think there are uh, there have been a number of cases that present this issue. I do think it is a particular problem in the auto industry because the uh, companies like GM are getting hundreds of dubious design patents in an effort to shut down the right to repair your car. But the fact that it has come up in this industry and it's a big deal in this industry doesn't mean it's not a problem elsewhere. I wanted to ask you one quick question along the lines of what Judge Chen had mentioned. Um, I, when I read the Rosen um, opinion, I saw that there were some statements in there that would remain something that I would think a patent owner could argue as a factual matter for why it would be that their patent is not obvious. And, for example, there was some complaint that modifications of Rosen necessary to achieve appellant's table design would destroy the fundamental characteristics of the Rosen design. And so I would think that someone still be able to argue, hey, you've got to modify this primary prior art reference so much to obtain the claim design that that totally undermines the prior art as well as the show's non-obviousness, if you will. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, Your Honor. And I think one way to accommodate that is to is in the doctrines we have uh, in the objective evidence, right, uh, uh, teaching away, uh, for instance, right, that might be an example of teaching away, right? I wouldn't, the if you have to kind of like break the form of one design in order to match it with the other, that that's not something that the design itself would suggest. There may be unexpected results as well. I think there will be circumstances and, and absolutely the freedom to argue a designer wouldn't do this because this is inconsistent with the way design works in this industry. Okay, thank you, Mr. Lund. Thank you, Ron. Uh, who, who is next on this one? Okay. Mr. Sheen. Good morning, and may it please the court. We urge this court to resist LKQ's overreading of KSR. 
and also to resist GM's under-reading of it. We provide a very middle-of-the-ground approach. What exactly is your proposed test? Our approach is exactly what KSR did. KSR didn't say that overrule TSM. KSR said TSM provides a very helpful insight. It is the fastest way to arrive at an obviousness case. It is the exemplary obviousness what case. What is your approach? Our approach is to, to basically remove all of the threshold requirements. No no uh, cutoffs, no thresholds. What about analogous arts? Analogous art can exist, exist the way it currently exists. The Durling test... That's a threshold requirement. The only thing that we would change in that requirement is I think that... So long as it is merely the same, the language that this court adopted in MRC, we think that is sufficient. That is the analogous art test for design patents. The only thing that we would change in that is we would say that, you know, you should merely, be able to... Merely the same? What, what did you just say? What, you, what, uh, what is the test? The test is that mere similarities between references is sufficient to provide... What does that mean? So long as the references are, it's sort of like a basic understanding. If the references are similar. That is a threshold test, though, right? You just said no threshold test, then you agreed it was analogous arts, and now you're saying mere similarity of the references, also a threshold test, and potentially all different threshold tests. No, we're saying that the existing test is fine. We're saying that we should, it should the be Rosen understood. The Rosen Durling test is fine? The Rosen Durling test is, is fine, but we do recommend some changes to it. We suggest that you get rid of any sort of threshold requirements. When it comes to the second part of the Rosen-Durling test, we think mere similarities, as this court found in MRC, is sufficient. Let's the only the thing... Part. You want us to keep Rosen-Durling, but there should be no threshold requirements. Rosen absolutely has a threshold requirement. You can't be considered as the primary reference unless you're basically the same. So what is it? you want to keep that? No, we say we would change that. What we would do is we would soften basically the same to have a more expansive approach to it. We would say that basically what the same... approach? Can you just give us some words to describe your approach? Our approach is that it should have an overall similar visual impression. That is our approach. That sounds what that, very much like the existing test. Not really. Our, the existing test is almost very much like the anticipation test. The existing what test about, does that. What about the closest prior art? Isn't that a sound test for a starting point with respect to obviousness? Yes, we think we think you should maintain that aspect of Rosen. We think that aspect of Rosen is really important. Exactly the same should be closest prior. We think basically the same should mean that it has the overall, you know, visual impression of the claimed design. But I'm what that means? Your test is not being. If you, you don't have to meet the threshold. This is a nice threshold, and you try to start there, but if you don't meet it, you still go on. That's exactly um, right. Okay. That's exactly right. And that's unlike Rosen, you stop if you don't meet the threshold. That's right. I think, you know, the basic insight from KSR that needs to be applied to that aspect of, a, of the Rosen test is just to recognize that you might have rare circumstances where you will be combining references that don't meet this, you know, uh, primary reference requirement. And you should be able to kind of leave the door open to common sense and let that in. And what's your primary reference, your description of it, is different than Rosen, right? It is. We relax it a bit. We soften it a bit and we say, you know, just something that has broadly the same overall impression is good enough. What we mean by that is if you look at this court's case law, you know, if you have to modify every individual feature, 
as in Jennings, then it's likely not the same, or you know, ni- likely not to meet our broader test. How if you need to make major test consistent with Whitman Saddle, I don't understand. Because if you t- if you think about Whitman Saddle, you know, under the current Rosen and Darling test, perhaps there is some tension. But if you understand Rosen in light of Jennings, where Rosen was really just concerned about this five way combination, then Whitman Saddle is not really a conflict. Because in Whitman, so where in Whitman Saddle is there a, a reference with an overall similar impression of whatever your test is? We don't think there is, and that's why we think you should continue. That's why we think that if you can't find a reference that is basically the same or has that same, you know, um, overall visual impression, you still continue because you don't want to close the door to common sense. You don't want to close the door to the type of evidence that was available. When you continue, what test do you apply in the continuation? You look to see whether or not an ordinary designer would have incorporated those elements that are missing, it, or, you know, put them together. And in Whitman's saddle, that evidence was so substantive, you just can't close your eyes to that. That evidence showed that there are hundreds of saddles that mixed and matched front and back end designs. And if that's right, then we have to take that into consideration. We can't, we can't, you know, not see that. We have to acknowledge that. But we still think it would be a very rare situation where you would have to go beyond a primary uh, reference. Why is it rare? Because in, in, in the design world, you know, if you have something that is not visually similar to something already in existence, you have to compare two things. You have to have a reference point. And if it's not the same, then most likely it's not obvious. You know, it's, it's a very strong, almost like a presumption that, you know, that the claim design isn't obvious. But we continue anyways just to make sure that there isn't this other evidence out there in the record that suggests otherwise, that other evidence could be industry. Why can't this just be like utility patents? I mean, you acknowledge that if you fail on the first test, you go on to the second and you apply the the rules of obviousness. Why do you, why, I I appreciate that maybe out of respect for this court, you're trying to cling to as much of Rose and Durling as you can. But leaving that aside, why? You know, I don't think it's necessary to view this as a two-step process. It is a holistic approach. If an examiner has before it uh, a claim to design, they look to find the art in that area, and they look for, you know, all the pertinent art in that area, and then from there they look to the one that is the closest, but they might find others that also satisfy this primary requirement. But they choose one, they compare it to the claimed invention, they look to see whether or not a designer would modify it based on their common understanding, based on creativity, based on, you know, you know. So what about a secondary understand? reference? I'm sorry. And also secondary references at the same time. They would also look at the secondary references and to see if those secondary references include some of the design characteristics that would be included in order to arrive at the claimed invention. So this can all be done at once. It doesn't have to be a two-step process. What all we're saying is, you know, get rid of the thresholds, get rid of any kind of bars, and relax what it means to be basically the same. And what we think, you know, in terms of what art you look at in terms of secondary uh, references can be consistent with what this court has already said in does, MRC. Does the N reference in this particular case satisfy your uh, similar visual effect standard? We have not taken a position on that in this case. What we think happens... I mean, it's hard for us to know what you think similar visual effect means and might be different than something that I might think what visual similar visual effect means. I mean, we need some kind of 
measuring stick here to figure out what these words mean compared to basically the same. That's right. So I think, you know, if you look at the case law, I think the case law tells you that at step one. They do look sort of the same, right? The N and the claim design. The board found that there were seven differences. I think, you know, the, the problem really here was that the board cut off the analysis after that first step, and that's what we think is problematic in light of KSR. So in light of that, we would ask this court to remand it back so that we can evaluate it under, you know, hopefully uh, the test that we're proposing if this court adopts that test. Towards the end of your brief, you talk about the examinations, and you highlight in your brief how many 40,000 applications every year, and you criticize LKQ's test because, you know, we don't have a lot of, we don't hire design designers as experts and whatever. So how does your approach differ from LKQ's approach? We don't think access to experts is a substitute for having a starting point. We think a starting point is is very critical to understanding design claims. And so we would maintain that. And we also don't think that this litigation-generated evidence is all that helpful in the examination context to begin with. It's we, we think that our examiners are capable as they are on the utility side, and as they already do on the design side, to look at the prior art and to figure out what the, you know, who the person of skill in the art is and uh, and to proceed from there. We don't need an expert to tell us so that. So the difference is you need a starting point, but even if you don't, you aren't satisfied by the starting point, you still continue to do an obvious analysis. That's exactly right. No, we have a... Mr. Sheeta, I have another concern yep. about what the board did here related to claim construction. It seems like they view that if uh, LKQ failed to articulate an accurate uh, description of the visual appearance, that that alone, standing alone, uh, defeated their obviousness uh, contention. Is that a, a rigidity, and would the government have us do something about that? You know, if you look at that language on uh, uh, at APPX 50 and 51, I think if you look at that language in a vacuum, that standing alone does seem a bit problematic. But I think when you look at it in context, all the board was saying there was that they didn't really agree with the claim construction that LKQ had provided, and that if they had, you know, applying that claim construction to uh, uh, to the record before it, they found against LKQ both on anticipation and obviousness. I don't think that they were suggesting that uh, they failed to provide, you know, the, the right so you claim think construction. The examiners already understand that they can't stop the obviousness analysis by simply finding that a purported or a proposed claim construction is wrong. I think that's right. That, I don't think that's a rigid rule. I think this is a, a you know an odd situation in this particular case. Can, can I ask again, please? Uh, what is your view of the the scope and content of prior art? What the analogous arts should allow the examiner or anyone else to consider? What, how would we explain the analogous arts concept in design patents? We would look, I think this court should look at what, what Glavis said, go back to the origins of Durling, which said that you look to similar references, uh, they, do you look to the nature of the art? Wait, stop. Yeah. Similar designs, similar products, same field of endeavor, or reasonably pertinent to the problem is the utility patent. So is the same field of endeavor here similar designs? Because you could have the same design on the sofa that's on my china, that's on, you know, or is it the product it's applied to? What I think it could be both. I think I think it depends on the context. I think it could be both. And if you look at what the court did in Glavis, right, in Glavis they said, yes, 
And they routinely look to what's happening in contemporary architecture to import designs from architecture to furniture. Wouldn't that be something you could look to, even though a design for a building is certainly not remotely in the same endeavor as a furniture designer? I, if, as a matter of fact, right. the skilled designers routinely look there, why wouldn't that be okay? I agree with you 100%. I'm not saying anything to the contrary. What I am saying is both in analyzing, you know, whether or not a reference satisfies this broader our broader understanding of basically the same and whether or not something is so related you always have to take into consideration the concern I have uh, is that you started a few minutes ago by saying we don't hire designers we don't hire experts so how in the world are the examiners going to evaluate the circumstances that Judge Lee proposed which by the way I agree with completely what he proposed but I'm just wondering how you're going to implement that because if we're saying if, if the position is so I just wanted to quickly go back to Judge Fisa's question. We think that at both at both points, you should take into consideration what an ordinary designer would take into consideration. Take into consideration common sense, design trends, industry custom, all of that comes into play. We're not saying that you don't consider this outside of that. That is always part of the analysis. And in terms, uh, just to get back to Judge Moore, to your question, the examiner can look at the art and figure it out. We might be citing to more art under this more expansive approach. But if you have 10 references that show a, a design, a, you know, a, a trend in a particular industry or show that this is the custom, or you, if you have a catalog like the catalog that existed in Whitman's Saddle, yeah, yeah. that's enough. Look at the prior art. The prior yes. art is just a picture of a design applied to a particular good. Well, How is your examiner going to figure out that people, designers in this industry, would look at sofas or architecture or whatever. It's it's because the examiner just doesn't look at one document at a time. The examiner does a very broad search. And in the design field, there is no shortage of prior art. There's actually the oath part. The art is actually overwhelming. Me. The, the, the scope and yes. of the prior art and the analogous arts doctrine is supposed to guard against hindsight. Your examiners aren't supposed to just go do a search of every design ever created. Yes. They're supposed to focus their search on and what these designers would have searched. And they do. They use the nature of the art and the claim to design to, 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 but, to create but that search. How does, I'm concerned too, how would the, the 
examiner know the answer to the question whether they routinely look to what seems to be a completely disparate field or not? I think there's a way to do that within... I mean, you could have a hypothetical where furniture designers never look to architecture. It's just not done. Or it's done routinely. But how does the examiner... I mean, in litigation, we can get to this through experts. But how does the examiner, the PTO, know whether to look to that or not as a prior reference? So, for example, if the claimed invention was to a woven basket used as a lampshade, like if that is the... You know, those are two different arts. You know, lamps and woven baskets. But if the claimed invention is to that, if the claimed design is to that, an examiner can get on to... Part of the search is Pinterest. Part of the search is, you know, other areas, catalogs that exist. If the examiner sees that there are actually a whole lot of lampshades out there that use baskets or lamps out there that use baskets as lampshades, that's evidence that this is, you know, this is common practice. What besides prior design patents do examiners search? They search patents. They search databases. They search... Databases of what? There's a design finder database out there. They search the JPO database. They search Amazon. They search Pinterest. They search eBay. They search social media sites. It's extensive. A design finder database. How does the examiner know that that's something that an ordinarily skilled designer in a particular field would have referenced or looked to? It would be based on what the claimed invention is, what the nature of that invention is. So, for example, if the article of manufacture is a chair, what would they search? I think that if it's a chair, it would include furniture more broadly because that makes a lot of sense. It's not just limited to chairs or a specific type of chair. I think they would look at furniture overall. And if it was a lampshade? I think if it was a lampshade, they would look, you know, into... Yeah, if the claimed design is a lampshade, then they would look at other lampshades. The claimed design is not a lampshade. The claimed design is an ornamental design that might be applied to a lampshade. Sure. Well, no, it could be the... Functional language, which has no applicability here. It could be an ornamental design applied to the cover of the lampshade, or it could be the form of the actual lampshade. I mean, it could be both. So, in your view, under your test, do we affirm or vacate and remand in this case? We ask this court to remand. We ask this court to strike out a new test in line with what we are suggesting, and then to remand to have the board re-evaluate based on that test. Can I ask you one last question, which is this? When I heard you earlier describing what your test was, I think you may have suggested that the PTO thinks it's very rare to go beyond the primary reference. Is that true? Is that what you said? Yes, that is true. We think, in most cases, the primary reference will resolve the case. But there might be circumstances, like Whitman Saddle, where we would need to combine with other references, or the primary isn't really a primary, where we have to move on and look for other references. Like if it's just a way to move on? I don't understand how you determine that. Because the initial search will give you a wide view of what the scope of the art is. And so when you have that before you, and you choose one that you think is the closest, you still have that other art that you had evaluated. It's rare to go on after you don't find such a primary reference. Because we do think that there is something very special about designs, that if it doesn't give you the same overall visual impression, that most likely it isn't obvious. 
that that is a pretty strong indication that it isn't obvious, but we continue in order to, to take into consideration common sense in order so that we don't shut the door. So then you do go on. We if always, you, yes. So if you don't find your visually similar uh, base reference, you do go on and complete the full 103. Yes, we do a holistic, okay. do a holistic we have so a holistic. what did you mean when you said we don't go on? Oh, so I guess what I meant by that is, so sorry, I might have misspoken there. What I meant by that is, usually if you find a primary reference that is you know, a primary reference that is very similar to the claim to design, and only minor modifications need to be made that are within the skill of an of a ordinary designer, that is sufficient to render the design um, obvious. That's that's what I meant by that. In a situation where you don't have a, a reference that comes at all close to the claimed invention, then that is a very good indication that it is not obvious, but you still continue, and you look to see if there's something else in the scope of the art that would get you to the claimed invention what by combining it. a good indication that it's not obvious, that there's no primary reference? I don't because, there's, because, because there's so many modifications... Right? I mean, the way you would define whether or not something is, has the same overall visual, gives you the same overall visual impression is to see how different it is from the prior art. And if it is very different or if it requires a whole lot of modifications or if there's substantial changes, then I think that is an indication that well, it's... Well, I mean, in this case, the uh, PTO found there were seven modifications, but I look at those things and they certainly give me the same overall visual impression. Now, I'm not a person of skill in the art. I'm not a fact finder, but... You know, what, what, I don't understand what the test is going to be for, for that then, under your circumstances. Under your proposed test, how, how is that going to work, this overall similar impression? Is it a raw number of something of, of minor differences? Is it sort of an overall view? I think the best thing to do is to look at the, the case law that this court has developed. And this court has said that if there are major modifications that need to be made in order to arrive at the claimed design from the prior art, then it's likely not a primary. I'm just trying to figure out whether I'm going to have to see Mark Lumley a year and a half from now, um, whether or not this is visually similar or not. That's, well, we don't want you to replace one rigid test with, with another, and I think there's no point in doing that, and we are trying okay. to give you a holistic approach. So th this this may be a little bit out of left field, but, but has the PTO taken into consideration what artificial intelligence portends for a new test in, in this area? We are studying that very carefully across the board at the agency, the implications of AI um, for our search, for our examination. Uh, I, don't I don't have an answer for you specifically as to what it means for design examination, but it is an important um, it is an Wouldn't important initiative. Would that impact the, 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 the two-step process here of obviousness, just turn it into one step? I mean, I think I think part of that is, well, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think we don't we don't think it has to be a two step, one step thing. We think we can all do it all at once. You know, but we do think it's important to start with a starting point. I suppose if you have a claim to design and you threw it into an AI machine and it can quickly kind of figure out how close or how far away it is from a, another reference, that'll give you an indication as to you know how you know whether it's. And then finally, does a prior have to be a a ornamental uh, design for an article of manufacture. No, it does. It does not have to be. It could be. It could be a lot of different things, right? It could be. Um, most likely, it is going to be another article. So you, can, you can get a, a design patent 
uh, uh, they, but it has to be an ornamental design for an article to manufacture. Yes, yes that is what the statute to get, says. To get, That's but correct. to use as a reference, it doesn't have to be on an article of manufacture, or that part of the statute has no play? I, I mean, most likely it is. We do look at other articles of manufacture. We look at other designs. What about a tattoo? I think that's pro probably okay if it's a surface design to look at. Is it true that uh, only about 1-2% of all design patent applications get a prior art rejection? During it's, examination? It's a little higher than that, Your Honor. Uh, uh, but it isn't anywhere close to utility. But I, I think that comparison... Higher? How, how much higher do you know? It's about 4% okay. from our most recent data. But the fact that there aren't obvious rejections at the same rate that there are in utility is not an indication of a problem. Uh, I think they're just very different. And to, to confuse correlation with causation, I think, is extremely problematic. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with design patents okay. because they're... I think we have your argument, Mr. Thank you very much. Counsel, how do I pronounce your name? Harry Mr. Harry, please proceed. Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Um, the Rosen-Durling framework is an important and thoughtfully developed application of Graham tailored to the unique issues in design patent litigation. This court and its predecessor have refined that framework over the last 40 years, including in the 15 cents Rosen, addressing questions such as what it means to be basically the same, the scope of relevant art and the obvious analysis, and the kinds of evidence that support modifying a primary reference. And it is done so in a way that illustrates the flexibility of this framework in its application. KSR did not overrule Rosen-Durling and does not otherwise prohibit the court's applications of non-statutory... Yes, in-bank, so we can reconsider it. Uh, un yes, Your Honor, I, I would agree with that. My understanding of our standard for the anticipatory reference in design patents is something that is substantially the same to the claim design. And if you could assume for the moment that, at the moment, I don't understand the difference between that standard and our Rosen reference standard for basically the same design, how would you educate me to identify the daylight between substantially the same and basically the same? So I think that there are there are two or three significant differences there. So the substantial similarity test, of course, is from the context of the ordinary observer. That's sort of the, the easy difference. Um, getting into more of the nuance, um, it has to be such that it would deceive that ordinary observer into believing one thing uh, is the other. So there's an element of deception there that creates a higher standard than the ordin uh, than the um, basically the same test. And the final thing I would say, Your Honors, is that in anticipation and infringement, there there is a concern over application to the particular article. Right? It has to be the same article. And we see that coming through in the uh, the most recent Columbia Sirius case. Um, whereas that's not necessarily the the, the requirements in obviousness. There can for the be Rosen reference. Rosen uh, I, reference doesn't have to be the same article of manufacture. Th there is a, a universe in which it may not have to be, and I, I would actually take your honors back to the Glavis case, which which I think is insightful on a number of points, and including this one. Um, and basically, what Glavis says uh, in, in some language I think is applicable here is, if we're talking about a vase, uh, it's probably got to be a vase. It's a primary reference. If we're talking about 
a design on that vase, perhaps that could be a design seen in the curtains in the prior art. Um, it, it depends, and that's some flexibility that is incorporated into that obviousness analysis as compared to uh, anticipation. One thing in I want. Pages 38 and 39 of your brief, you say the Supreme Court's analysis in Whitman Saddle is consistent with how Rose and Darling has been applied. <coughs> how is that a credible argument? I, I think, Your Honor, what the, the way we see Whitman Saddle is uh, a few ways. It's it's the court sitting in equity, of course, 50 years before 103 and about 100 years before Rose and Darling. But what they're doing there is applying a test um, where, where we have a primary reference. And frankly, I think either one of those could have served as a primary reference, looking to the full scope <coughs> of the art, which Rosen freely applies, and I can get into that uh, in a minute. could be a re- Rosen reference, but neither one is substantially the same. I, I, the same. I think they absolutely could be, Your Honor. There's, there's a lot of focus in the briefs about the very front of the saddle and the very rear, the pommel and the cancel. And that's been sort of turned into this idea that it's a 50-50 split. But I think if you look at the saddles, that that midsection also shares many uh, commonalities with the claim design and, frankly, probably with the rest of the prior art. How, how could either of those saddle references be a Rosen reference if the Lyanna reference here is not? It, it, it's dependent on the art, Your Honor, and this case presented one in which... Um, are, you, are you contending that each of those saddles looked more like the claimed challenge saddle than the Leanne reference looks to your patent? No, Your Honor, I'm, I'm not making that contention. I'm making the contention that a, a fact finder, in the case of the Whitman Saddle case, could have properly found that either one of those are our primary reference. The facts in our case um, revealed that designers of ordinary skill in this particular field are attuned to nuanced differences and that those differences draw a, an important distinction between the primary reference here, Leanne, and the claimed reference. Um, there was seven seven differences that the board went to, um, and they did so in the context of considering the full scope of the prior art. And I think that's an important... If somebody tried to count the differences between the two references in Whitman Saddle and the claimed design, we would easily get to more than seven, starting with the fact that it's a front-half-back half situation. I don't understand to follow on... On Judge Prost, I'm not sure how this is a credible <coughs> argument. Well, I mean, it was it was the the facts of that case that that led to that conclusion, the robustness of the art there. Um, but I think uh, on Whitman, another point we'd like to make is it doesn't preclude the future use of further development um, of this test, doing exactly what intermediate courts do. There's nothing in Whitman Saddle that precludes the further development of the test of the Rosenderlin test. Um, that we see today, and it's not fundamentally inconsistent with Whitman Saddle. I, I want to address... I'm a little confused the there. Are, are you suggesting that the Rosen-Durling test is is an open test, it's not a closed test? My, my understanding is if you don't have a Rosen reference, it's over. Your 103 challenge is kaput. But are you suggesting, no, that's not really the case, maybe there's something more that a challenger could do above and beyond the Rosen-Durling framework? Yeah, let, let me let me be very clear on our, on, our, on our argument here. I think we would not agree with the way that the government phrases it, which is, as I understand it, as a matter of ordinary course, even if there's not a Rosen reference, you continue. Um, the way we would 
phrase it, Your Honors, is there may be a case out there that can, in which a patent challenger can show obviousness outside of the context of Rosen-Durling. But to my knowledge, that hasn't been an exception that's been articulated. It wasn't articulated here below. It's not been articulated here today. I guess it depends on how you read Whitman Saddle, of course. Perhaps, Your Honor. I guess outside of that, based on our reading of Whitman Saddle, we don't believe it's been articulated. So what we would suggest is if the court is inclined to give an additional off-ramp or additional flexibility to this test, that the way to do it would be, in our view, to affirm the principle of Rosen-Durling but not foreclose the possibility that in the future, in a case where it's been fully articulated, the exact circumstances. So under what circumstances would you depart from Rosen-Durling? Frankly, Your Honor, standing here today, we think it's going to be a rare case, if any. And I think we would very well argue against it. But I think Your Honor had raised this prospect of a new product. And that might be one. I think you might argue as a patent owner that lends itself to novelty and non-obviousness, the fact that it's new. But that might be a case in which, under the right facts, a patent challenger could articulate an exception here, that it fits outside of the general rule. Well, you also say in your brief at 39 that the degree of similarity will vary depending on the art. So I don't understand what factors would inform this degree of similarity, which is based on art-specific. How is that a workable standard? So I think about this in the way I think the court, in part, was thinking about this in Egyptian Goddess. And that is that the similarities or the commonalities and the differences between a primary reference and the patent are going to vary depending on what else is out there in this art. When what we actually articulated in this particular case, now I hear my opponent saying this test does not allow for consideration of the full scope of the prior art. It's absolutely not true. We urge the board in this case to look at the full scope of the prior art because, in our view, it illustrated the importance of the differences between the primary reference and the claimed patent. And the board, in fact, then went on to do that at Appendix 13, 35, and 53, finding that the art illustrates the commonalities and differences. So, Your Honor, I think it's the kind of thing that is fact-dependent because you can imagine a situation which, as we articulated here, it's a relatively crowded art. Designers are relatively sophisticated, and so they're drawn to nuance and they're drawn to differences in a way that perhaps in a different art they wouldn't be. And that's how the prior art and the full scope of the prior art really contributes to this analysis. Counsel, do you think the analogous arts test has any place in a Rosen-Durling-type analysis of obviousness? I think, Your Honor, if you can't find a piece of analogous art, you're not likely to find a Rosen-Durling reference. I think it's the Rosen test. In other words, you probably don't even have to think about analogous art if what you need to have is a Rosen test. I think you may need to think about it the second step more. I think it's maybe a hurdle but a small one. It's baked into the Durling secondary reference test. It has to be so related to the primary reference that that's already baked in the idea of analogous art. I think generally, yes, and if you trace the history back to the Glavis case, they were talking about the analogous arts and how we look at that 
um, vis-a-vis the mechanical arts, how we look at that um, from more of a design-based motivation rather than mechanical motivation. Why couldn't they just rely on, instead of Glavis having the so-related test, why couldn't a analogous art test work in a more of a flexible fact-based analysis? So I, I think that Glavis is more flexible and, and is is indeed more flexible than um, LKQ is giving it credit for. Because frankly, if you if you look at the way Glavis developed, it, it is much closer that that secondary reference needs to be along the lines of the hub case, Your Honor, where the it's got to be something sufficiently... It's like you're not answering my question, though. My oh. question was, why can't the analogous arts test replace the so-related test in a way that provides a more flexible analysis? Because I think <clears throat> I think replacing it without more is going to is going to remove a step, which which is that there should be a reason or a, a, that someone would actually take that next step to make the combination. So that's a different question, isn't it? I mean, there's a question of whether there's the art that's being considered has to be analogous art because that defines what an ordinary designer would know. And then also separate from that, there has to be a reason to combine. Right? Yes, you're I right. mean, under a KSR analysis. Yeah. yeah. So I think if, if the so related test, I think it, assuming we've, we've still got that additional requirement that okay, it has Let's to- assume that Rosen and Durling are gone. So now focus on what should the analogous arts test be? Because the motivation still exists, right? Mm-hmm. Graham has three factors. I'm throwing out secondary consideration because I'm struggling with how they apply in design patterns. So we've got three Graham factors. Scope and content of the prior art. The way it works in the utility, that the only limit there is analogous arts. Then we have step two, compare them to assess their differences. And that's where you would do something like what Rosen does, compare them to assess their differences. Step three is then what would be the motivation or why would a skilled artisan make this combination? Imagine now I'm going to superimpose that crazy, very unique thinking onto design patents. Assume that's what's going to happen. Tell me what you want out of it. What's analogous art? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think analogous art is what's articulated <clears throat> in HOP. It's got to be the same article manufacturer or... Articles sufficiently similar that a person of ordinary skill would look to such articles for their design. That's focusing on the article. What if Judge Hughes' typo is absolutely correct and that ordinarily skilled furniture designers absolutely routinely look at art building architecture to sort of incorporate the modern aspects of building architecture into the furniture design? That hub test has us focusing on the similarity yeah. of the article the design's applied to as opposed to what a designer would look to. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a fair clarification, Your Honor, and I, I didn't mean to overread. and I think read literally Hub does focus on the article. It's, I think from our view, it should be something that you could eliminate that article's language of sufficient similarity a person of ordinary skill in the design, ordinary skill would look to it. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be an article. It could be something else uh, motivating a person to look at it. Um, well, so, so I, if, it, if a designer of ordinary skill in the art would look for design inspiration to a particular type of reference or a field, then you would not oppose in a world in which there is no Rosen Durling, you would agree that the analogous art test should be broad enough to capture that, correct? I would agree with that, Your Honor. So can you um, help me understand this? So sometimes there's talk about the ordinary observer, sometimes mm-hmm. there's talk about the ordinary designer. Can you? 
put those phrases um, in their proper boxes for me? Yes, Your Honor. So the ordinary observer would be the test that we apply to uh, primarily to infringement and um, and anticipation, um, whereas the ordinary designer would be limited to the uh, 103. So at some point in the obviousness analysis, is there a role for saying overall, boy, these things look very, very similar to me and I'm not a designer? Not from our perspective, Your Honor. I think that the, the analysis, whether it's by a, by a court at summary judgment or the fact finder at a jury trial, um, the analysis needs to remain focused on um, the perspective of the ordinary designer. Harris, what, what is your view on claim construction? Did the board get it wrong here by suggesting it was a dispositive failing and more importantly, what would you have us say, if anything, about claim construction? I, I think the, the way we understand that first test is if you were to draw an analog to the utility context, I don't think that test means that if you interpret, construe semiconductor wrong in the utility context, you lose. I don't think that's what it means. I think what that test means is we're looking at the overall visual impression, and if you... Uh, don't articulate the full visual impression. In other words, if you don't address every claim element to to go to the analog of utility, um, that that is a problematic. That's problematic, and that's sort of an evidentiary or proof reason why you um, should fail. So I think it's it's not a high hurdle. It simply is that in this case they said there were only two differences, and there were myriad other differences that they simply didn't address. But and the it way, was, but the way it should be done, and maybe the board was trying to say this, I'm not sure, but is let's get the claim construction right and then apply it and see who wins, whether obviousness is proven or not. Is that right? I think that's I think that's generally the way it should work, but if you have a situation where a patent challenger simply doesn't address significant portions of the design, that's an additional evidentiary failure upon which I realize this may not be a problem that we can reconcile today, mm-hmm. but I have a substantial concern that the one oh three is assessed by the perspective of an ordinary designer, whereas infringement is assessed by the perspective of an ordinary observer, because you could end up, you told me that, for example, in this art, uh, it's a sophisticated art with a lot of prior art, so designers are very attuned to the nuances and the differences. So that means you can get a patent on something an ordinary observer would have absolutely said is the same thing. So you can get a patent over prior art, because you're saying the ordinary designer are very attuned to these differences. They're going to focus in on the differences, and that's going to impact their thinking on obviousness. Whereas the ordinary observer, say me, much less sophisticated, I'll tell you, I look at these things, no difference. For sure, if I'm the ordinary observer, done. But that means you get infringement damages against people when the very same thing or very similar things may have been in the prior art. And the ordinary designer, much more sophisticated, would have allowed you to get your patent. What do we do about that? Your Honor, I I guess what I can say about that is I'm not aware of that ever having, a situation like that ever having come up, frankly. Well, I didn't know before this case that the the, the two standards were divorced. Did you also say earlier that the standard for anticipation is the ordinary observer? Yes, Your Honor. The the test is an ordinary observer for anticipation. So if the ordinary observer is less particular than the ordinary designer, then theoretically you could end up in the situation that Chief Judge Moore just identified, where to an ordinary 
observer maybe a prior art reference would anticipate because an ordinary observer doesn't take that much care into examining every little nook and cranny of a particular design. But at the same time, because ordinary designers are so sensitive in a crowded art, they would take out the magnifying lens and look at every little mathematical difference between a claim design and a primary reference. I mean, there's still the aspect of deception, I think, that broadens out the obviousness. That broadens out anticipation, you mean? Well, I think it makes it... Yeah. Yeah, potentially. Um, Your Honors, I'd like to talk a little bit about our differences between the governments. Um, I I think that the, the... where we have the most firm agreement, I've already addressed, which is on that second step that the, that the uh, analysis continue as a matter of course. I think the way the government phrases the first aspect of the Rosen-Derling test, instead of basically the same overall uh, uh, similar basic effect, I, I, my concern there is I, I, I we agree with them that it's it's necessary to preserve this overall framework. And if it is a semantic difference, I don't think it's one the court should make um, because we've got now 40 years uh, of uh, interpretation of what it means to be basically the same over uh, the prior art. And I I think going to a semantically different uh, standard is is not going to provide us with the clarity we need. Um, And if if it's loosening the standard, we also don't think that should be uh, what the court does here. This... The, the basically the same task as it's been articulated simply requires an adequate starting point or similar design concepts. Um, other courts, uh, the Campbell Court, have phrased it as not having substantial differences. Um, and those cases allow consideration or reference to the skill designer's creativity, knowledge, and common sense. They allow the, the, the consideration of the full scope of the art. As I mentioned, that's what we urge here and what the board... Counsel, one of the points made by LKQ is that the statistics, whether it's 2% or 4%, um, I'm just summarizing it, are worrisome, worrisomely low. Mm. And therefore, a change in real-world consequences from the current legal approach would be a good thing, not a bad thing. How do I evaluate that argument? So I, I agree with the government's uh, view on this, that the comparison of the statistics between utility and design is not necessarily one um, that sheds a lot of light on things because they're so different. And one thing the government didn't mention but that I'd like to is a point the Hyundai amicus brief makes, which is that often these these design patents, because it's a singular claim, um, you will see... A, um, for example, a shoe will be patented once, and then you'll see you know 20 more patents off that similar initial concept. So there'll be a lot of patents that come out of the same uh, invention um, because you can't have you know 25 claims. And so I think that helps to explain, or it's a difference that helps to explain um, why we see a different allowance rate. I think the 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 narrowness uh, of design patents is another reason why we see a um, a difference in the allowance rate as compared to. Utility. So to answer your direct question, I don't... Might it also be the case that the world of um, designs, whether configurations or ornaments applied to articles, is so close to infinite 
that it doesn't matter as much in the real world if somebody has a particular uh, design and therefore there's an implicit I don't know, real world policy assessment about whether something is being foreclosed to which alternatives are not so available? I, I think that if I'm, I'm understanding your question... I'm just spinning yeah, it think, but I'm curious. I'm trying to understand what to make of this statistical point. I, I think the problems are of, of having more patents granted at a higher rate. I think I would generally agree with your Honor that these patents are... The purpose of these design patents is generally to uh, patent something very narrowly to stop people from knocking it off. And so it's, it's, it's not the same, and they're also limited to that particular article. And so it's a much narrower grant than a utility patent might be. From your perspective, is it important or not important for us to decide if KSR overrules or abrogates Rosenberling? Well, I would think if we thought it overruled it, you'd think that was important, right? That's what I was going to say, Your Honor. <laughs> How about Aberdeen? Is it important for us to address that question? I think I would agree generally with the way Mr. Lemley phrased it. We, of course, we do not think KSR overruled it implicitly or otherwise, but I, I would share Mr. Lemley's belief that the court is analyzing here whether the, the language about undue rigidity is uh, inconsistent. And so I don't know that the court... I agree with Judge Moore, of course. We, we, we do not think uh, it should be overruled, and that would be uh, a problem for us. But um, I don't think the court needs necessarily needs to get there. What is the source of the legal authority the Rosen Court had to articulate the basically the same uh, command for a primary reference? As far as I know, uh, there was no case before Rosen that mandated that requirement or articulated any version of that, certainly not the Supreme Court, and we know it's not in the statute. So what's the source material for that? I think the source the source material for it is, is, is Jennings, which is a, a case preceding it, and I think that will answer your Honor's question in part. It did not articulate... It the, just said starting point. It said, yeah, there, it says you need a starting point, and then Rosen goes from there and articulates um, what that starting point must be, building on that prior law. It's a heavy gloss at a minimum. <laughs> I, I think it's it's a it's a gloss that has been further refined over the last forty years in in a way that illustrates it. It does not have the heaviness that maybe it initially seemed it might. But isn't it true that neither Rosen nor Durling discussed Mansell? That's right, Your Honor. It's a problem. I I do not think it's a problem, Your Honor. I think it's a it's a suggestion that the court there did not believe that Whitman Saddle precluded it from following uh the path that it did. Um and it's a suggestion I think not to necessarily overread uh Whitman to preclude um the further development of those tests. Are you did you just suggest that basically the same um means something different today as applied by courts in the PTO today compared to what the Rosen Court thought basically the same meant when it articulated that standard? I think what I'm trying to suggest, Your Honor, is that, that like any test, it, it in a vacuum basically the same is is um, perhaps difficult to understand, but that has been refined over the course of the last 40 years to provide further guidance about what it means in a way that Right, I think but just to be clear, you're, you're happy with the current... Uh, conception of that standard yes, and sure. how it's applied. You're not suggesting that it should be in any way budged or, or modified in application. 
in application, no. We think the way that the court has developed this uh, and, and articulated the meaning of what it what it means to be basically the same is is the correct application. That After a patent examiner finds a Rosen primary reference and a Durling secondary reference, does a design patent examiner need to do anything more? My understanding is that's the end of the analysis. Yeah, I think if if we read Durling uh, as a, or Glavis as I do to require a reason to to make the combination, yes, I think that's that's the finding. Right. The, the, find, the, the rationale for the combination is the fact-finding that the secondary reference is so related in visual content to the primary reference? I, I would agree with that. There, there may be other factors that are considered along so with that. You, you don't have to... And so, therefore, under the current regime, you don't at all think about or need to think about all those um, menu of rationales that su- the Supreme Court discussed in KSR. I think some of them are inapplicable. Um, you know, obvious to try, I think, would not be applicable. Um, but the, I don't think that Durling precludes the consideration of additional things that might, you know, strengthen it. Why case. would obvious to try not be applicable to the design patent context if we're talking about, say, only a finite number of ways to, uh, I don't know, uh, have a certain product design feature look? Or why... And, and it'd be uh, easy to use or implement any single one of those known ways? I think the rub is in your honor's hypothetical. It's it's not um, finite. Design is, is and the, there's been cases writing about this in the lead compound test for similar reasons. It's not finite such that you could um, have a predictable solution within a finite set of options. Design is a is a situation where while conceptually similar, lines, curves, shading, things of that nature, um, they have near infinite possibilities in their application, um, which is why, obviously, try is, is ill-fitting in that context. Do you agree that Whitman's saddle did not use the reason for combining that the second reference was so related to the first, I think was Granger, that it suggests itself to be used with the first? That's not the reason. The Supreme Court gave a different reason, didn't it? Said in practice, saddlers, who I guess are persons of ordinary skill, ordinary designers, those folks typically routinely take the front end and back end of two different saddles, right? So isn't Whitman inconsistent? I mean, isn't isn't Sadler inconsistent then with the Rosen-Durling so related test? I don't think it's inconsistent. I agree with your honor. That's what they did, but I also think that the so related it would fit as a secondary reference under the so-related test as well. Um, but they went beyond the so-related test and gave a different kind of reason. Th- they did in that case, and I don't think that precludes the further development of uh, a test that uh, refines that. Um, and I think this, the, the so-related test, I want to be very clear, I think it re- requires merely that the designer of ordinary skill, um, that it be a reference that the designer of ordinary skill would look to so I think women didn't necessarily articulate it in those exact words, but in a sense, that's what they did. They said saddlers would combine these saddles. They would look to other saddles to get design motivation. And so I think that's not inconsistent with what uh, ultimately uh, became the test coming out of Glavis incorporated into Durling. Isn't the problem with the so-related test, test that it says only it's a restrictive term? I don't think that's a problem in its application, Your Honor, because what what the so-related test requires is merely a 
similarity, a visual similarity between the um, references such that a designer of ordinary skill would look to that secondary reference. So I, I don't think that, that restriction is one that's unduly rich in its application. Okay, thank you, counsel. Mr. Lemley, you have some rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, so let me begin by uh, suggesting that um, I think I heard at various points uh, everyone in the room agree that uh, we need to change. Um, that, uh, I, I think there's a lot of people in this room who did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, well, everyone on this side of the table, Your Honor. Um, uh, uh, the government certainly thinks we need a change of some sort. We need to remand. What do you think about the government's proposed change? I, so I, what I would say, Your Honor, I want to I um, uh, maybe modify my prior statement. I would have thought coming into this argument that we and the government were in complete agreement, what I, uh, almost complete agreement. What I would say is we're in pretty strong agreement with the government's brief. Um, I'm not sure that that is fully represented in what was uh, re- uh, suggested at oral argument. I don't think it's right that uh, it's going to be rare to ever go beyond a prior reference, a single reference at all. I don't think that's consistent with, uh, with KSR. And I don't think that um, calling it a version of the Rosen test and saying it's basically the same, but we'll just apply it more uh, flexibly is actually going to communicate uh, to the PTO, to the uh, examiners, to the district courts what needs to be communicated. What about those concepts that we were discussing that were causing me pause, which is that the government suggested it doesn't have experts and it doesn't have the ability to really determine what an ordinary designer would or would not look to. What do we do about that? Well, I think it's not right to say that the government doesn't have experts. The PTO does hire designers. You can look uh, in our reply brief at page 22. There's a reference to the PTO's own uh, citation for what their qualifications are for a design so patent you examiner. You suggested to us that different designers in different fields may very well have a different approach to how far they go outside of the field of the article of manufacturer to look at other designs. Absolutely, Your Honor. And, and I think just as uh, we have uh, utility patent examiners in different fields who have different specialties, I think that's true of the design patent world as well. Uh, and that designers focus, uh, design examiners focus on particular subsets of the design field. They don't just do design as a whole. Now, I think that can be supplemented in appropriate cases by an applicant submitting a declaration as need be. Uh, but so we, we face the same problem uh, for the PTO in the utility patent context. Uh, but it is a problem that we've been able to resolve, either by looking to to, uh, references that talk about the interests and motivations of designers, by looking to their own knowledge and skill, or by looking to expert declarations. But the difference in the analogous arts with regard to utility patents is same field of endeavor. We can all wrap our head around that concept. It might shift to be broader or narrower in some circumstances. The other one is reasonably pertinent to the problem the inventor was trying to solve, not reasonably pertinent to whatever an ordinarily skilled artisan would think. <clears throat> so you've kind of recommended a test that isn't very much in all fours with utility patents for analogous arts. Well, I think it can. I think I, I think this court could articulate a test that was reasonably pertinent to the problem the designer, the the patent applicant, was trying to solve. I'm I'm okay with that modification. Um, I, I would like briefly to address Judge Stark's uh, questions about claim construction. 
um, uh, because I, uh, I I think if anything, it is an independent reason to reverse in this case. Um, uh, the board incorrectly believed Rosen and Durling required a detailed claim construction. If Rosen's not good law, I don't think that's true. But this court has repeatedly, an Egyptian goddess, said uh, we don't require a detailed verbal claim construction. It's even discouraged it in cases like Crocs from having one at all. Um, and uh, the uh, and the board in this case at the institution stage said no verbal description was necessary, so we didn't give a verbal, a detailed claim construction, and then it held in the final uh, decision that uh, what a reason for rejecting our view was that we didn't give a sufficiently detailed claim construction. We don't think a claim construction should be required at all, but it certainly shouldn't be required here as a gotcha after the board had uh, decided the opposite. Um, finally, I will note, uh, I'd like to address um, uh, Your Honor's concern, uh, which I share, about the sort of challenging uh, overlap between ordinary observer and designer. Uh, design patents are, uh, design patent infringement is different than utility uh, patent because it requires an ordinary observer. Uh, and I think there is a potential problem uh, in which we could find something under current law uh, to be obvious, uh, non-obvious under one standard, uh, even though so uh, it's something that would cover the prior art. To me, that's a reason we can't just fall back on some formulation of basically the same. Uh, right? We can't leave us in a circumstance where an invention that is, in fact, obvious uh, not only gets a patent, but a patent that turns out to be infringed by something that should have fit within the if prior we, art. If we only made one change, what should that change be? Uh, uh, overrule Rosen and Durling, Your Honor. <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. I thank all counsel. Uh, Thanks for well argued. We appreciate your guidance today.